We're going to have our Bible reading now. Um, we are in the second of our two-part series in friendship, which Pete is going to be leading us um, in thinking about in a second. Uh, we, next week, we're going to start a series in 1 John, or 1 John, um, and um, we are very much looking forward to going looking through that letter together. But we're going to have a few readings today as we look at friendship. And the first, if you have a Bible, turn to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, verses 15, 17. If you need a Bible, pop your hand up and uh, we can get one to you. So we'll have a reading from Colossians and then a few readings from Proverbs. And Emily is going to read for us. So our first reading today is from Colossians 3, verses 15 to 17. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And then our next readings are all from Proverbs. So we start at Proverbs 17, verses 17. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for time of adversity. Our next is from chapter 18, verse 1. An unfriendly person pursues selfish ends, and against all sound judgment starts quarrel. The next is from 18, verse 24. One who has unreliable friends soon comes to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. The next is chapter 27, verses 5 to 6. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. Verse 9. Perfume and incense bring joy to the heart, and the pleasantness of a friend springs from their heartfelt advice. Well, welcome. It's a pleasure to be meeting again this morning together. And if you've got your Bibles open, we will be flicking around. I've also got um, some of the verses on the slides as well, so um, hopefully it will be straightforward to follow as we have this second part in our mini-series on friendship. And I want to just, in your mind now, bring to mind the friends who have impacted you, the people that you've been investing in over the last couple of weeks, Maybe those over years as well, those whose relationship you've depended on and valued their input in your life. Just bring them to mind now, because as we're going through this, it's not theory, it's not academic knowledge. This is real life. This is amongst the people God has placed us with, who he's brought into our lives. And as we saw last week, that uh, just as a quick recap... That friendship, the foundation for it is, firstly and foremostly, that it's God's idea, it's God's gift to us. The heart of God is friendship, is God reaching out. We saw this firstly in Genesis, in those opening chapters of chapter 2 and 3, as God dwelt with Adam and Eve. And even with the rebellion, he is the one who walks in the garden calling out to them. And ultimately, God as friend is fleshed out in Jesus Christ, the friend of sinners who pursues us, who rescues us through his death, his resurrection that we've already sung about today, and calls us to be friends. In John 15, we looked at the very fact that with his close disciples, he says, you are now my friends. 
And that by application is to all who follow him because he entrusts us with his mission. Friends know each other's business. And then we explored the goal of Christian friendship. And that's spelt out by Paul, who puts it succinctly in Ephesians 4, of growing in maturity together for Christ's glory. So Christian friendship in the church is helping each other, as he writes in chapter 4, verse 13 of Ephesians, to attain to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. That's his goal. That's his vision. That's what God has called us to. And practically, that means that healthy Christian friendships will be built on humility in Ephesians 4 verse 2. That is a dependence on Jesus, a a willingness also to help each other, especially by praying for one another. And so we looked at those two characteristics, and this morning we'll look at another two. And within that, two questions raised about friendship. And the first thing that you, you can see there on the slide, just very simply, but probably one of the most profound things we need in friendship is availability. Is to be people who are available. It's there in Proverbs chapter 17, verse 17. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for a time of adversity. The friend is consistent, and they are more than a brother because they are there in the good times and the bad, in the highs and the lows. And chapter 18, verse 24, in contrast, shows that those who have unreliable friends come to ruin. But there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Brothers and sisters are brilliant. But what Proverbs is saying is friends go deeper. Friends, a gift of God, are stronger. And it leaves us with a a taste, a hunger to say, well, I want a friend like that. I, I want a friend who sticks closer, who loves at all times. And it's almost as if the Rembrandt's theme tune to Friends should be playing in the background as these verses are read. I'll be there for you. You see, friends are there when the chips are down, aren't they? When things go wrong, when we have very little to give them, friends step up. And so availability, closely followed by reliability and constancy, are, are a strong trio, aren't they? It's hard to separate them. And they're essential for authentic friendships. To love at all times means sacrificing convenience. Sacrificing our convenience. It means being ready to stop what we're doing to serve someone else. And that's costly, isn't it? Good friendships, therefore, take time. And so it's natural, isn't it, that one of the obstacles to a good friendship then is immediately obvious. It's that our time is limited. That, it, that it's hard to invest that. Where do we do that? How do we discern these things? With all the tech that we have, Snapchat, FaceTime, WhatsApp, whatever methods of communication you use, they're brilliant for making it very easy to be available, to be in constant contact. However, the thought and the wisdom, without the thought and wisdom, the availability and the connectedness that tech brings can easily harm caring friendships, can't it? If you think about it, that, that ease, that access, that over-reliance on the tech might mean that friends just become another thing to do on the list. 
there's a lack of care and thoughtfulness in the messages. Maybe they just become a bit banal, a bit superficial, um, sharing the latest funny TikTok, which is okay in itself. But if that's a regular diet, then there's not much going on. Or maybe it's about gossip or just an opportunity to moan. These things can just become quite thoughtless. Joanne Harris, the author of um, Chocolat, the, the book that I think was published just uh, I think it's had its 20th anniversary recently, but um, it's about a, a French community and uh, the, uh, a woman who moves in and starts uh, creating these wonderful chocolate treats. Uh, and interestingly, the polarization is that the local church and the priest there really is quite a, a nasty character. But Joanne in this book, um, which brought her to fame, actually is very honest about um, what she went through with the internet. She, she was concerned about the effect that her time online was having on her relationship, so she decided to have a fast from it, to stop using it completely. She noticed the hours she spent communicating with a long list of people meant that she hardly knew uh, and hardly had ever time, uh, timed with her close friends. So she comments, even for someone like myself who ought to know better, a virtual hug from a stranger can sweeten an otherwise bad day. It's all too easy to forget that this is an illusion, a false intimacy that serves only to compensate for the absence of a real one. Isn't that honest? Isn't that insightful? That doesn't lessen the online friendships in one sense, but it does put them in the right place. It puts them in perspective, and it realizes that our expectations in them can't be too great. There's a difference between friending, those relationships that can probably happen almost exclusively online, and friendship in person. In the 1990s, uh, Robin Dunbar, who's a British evolutionary psychologist and anthropologist, he published a study on human social relationships. And his central claim was that at any one point, humans can cognitively handle up to 150 meaningful relationships, which obviously includes family and friends. And other studies have challenged this over the years. But what's interesting is his analysis remains very popular. It's a bit of a go-to in the way that people think about their connections. And according to the theory, you've got these circles, concentric circles, with the tightest being just five loved ones. And then from there, 15 friends. They're good friends. They're the ones who have more com commitment and provide practical support and care. Then 50 then 150, which is, I think, in some footnotes, like Christmas card list type stuff. <laughs> 500 it goes to with acquaintances, and 1,500 people you can recognize, maybe not recall their name. <laughs> but people move in and out of those layers as well. And it's an interesting analysis because the key idea is that fundamentally space has to be carved out for any new people, and that there's a dynamic flow. And there seems to be a limit on how much, how many deep friendships can be sustained. And when we look at the Bible, fascinatingly, we see that dynamic, even in the way Jesus connected with people. There was the crowd who came and went and ebbed and flowed and, you know, over 5,000 people listening to him teaching and being fed. But what did they really get from that? Then there's the 72, a tighter crowd who are on his mission. 
And he knows. Then there's a small group of disciples, 12 apostles, and a small group of women as well who were there throughout the three years of ministry. And then within the 12, there's three that he invests in, Peter, James, and John, who have unique experiences like the transfiguration, who also go through very dark, unique experiences like Peter denying Christ and disowning him. The moment in Gethsemane where he calls them aside to pray with him. But the wisdom of Proverbs puts that reality this way. In chapter 20, verse 6, it just says very clearly, many claim to have unfailing love, but a faithful person who can find. You see, again, there's an honesty about saying we can only manage so much in our friendships. And claiming to be loving when we don't deliver is a lie. Numbers aren't everything. Meaningful commitment is. Good friends don't grow on trees. Nor should we expect them to um, uh, feel fulfilled by our friendships in its entirety, by, by having large numbers. That will not satisfy. So availability, with that reliability, with that constancy there in the background as well for friendship, means uh, being open. It means that we... Uh, sorry, I'm just trying to look if my slides are clicking on. Thanks, there we go. Just some pointers here. It means being open. Sharing our hopes and fears, plans as well for, for the issues that we, we struggle with as well. Let's be open about that. I mentioned it last week, making time in the busy schedules for one another and discerning where to put that time into whom. This requires prayer as we're open. Being interested. Again, friendships grow through listening to each other, asking good questions. Some of those will be the normal things. How was your day? But it also means a willingness to go deeper, sharing worries, sharing the issues in other relationships that are challenging, talking to each other on a level deeper than just, is everything fine? That requires trust. That requires openness. It means giving help as well. Friendships are best strengthened through relatively small actions, I find. Whether it's sending the card before an exam or job interview, whether it's having a regular time over a meal. And to be clear, let's just, these things are not exclusively done in one to one relationships. They can be and should be in groups where there's community, where other people are brought in, and that, that network, that web of friendship is strengthened. And for Grace Church Manchester, we're an urban church here in, in, in South Manchester, but very near the centre. We also have, over the years, an unusually young demographic as a church. We're an urban church and we have a young demographic, and that demographic is mobile. And it is a bit of a challenge to friendship when you think about it, because it means we have a high proportion of people who come and go, come and go. And there's a flow to that. When I think um, in the original life group that Emily and I were part of when we were, uh, first came to Grace Church back in uh, 2014 with Helen and Graham were part of that life group, half our life group aren't here. Uh, I think two are in different countries, one's in Manchester serving in a different church which is great, still in contact with, but half of them have gone, serving the Lord. And it would be easy wouldn't it, to, to focus on the negative in our context. Oh, people are always going, it's too hard to make friendships, why bother? But actually, it is a huge gift and strength 
to invest in people, to learn from people's different experiences, different parts of the world, diverse backgrounds, and knowing that as they go on and we move, that spreads, that love, that fellowship, that prayerful togetherness in God's mission. And so this should encourage us to say, yes, let's invite, uh, invest generously and wisely in our friendships, in each other. And it relates to one of the questions that was raised, sort of going a little bit further, uh, last week. One of the questions that um, was submitted was, how do friendships with the opposite sex work in Christian community? How do friendships between men and women work in, in, Christian, in, in the church? And it's a great question, and it's a massive subject. So I'm not going to answer it this morning, but I will dip in just a headline uh, to give a few thoughts. And I think we, should, we will be coming back to this at some point this year, definitely. I also appreciate that there's a sensitivity to the question, because I think, just as Hannah was saying, some of the national news and international stuff going on, particularly in the evangelical church, is that there have been scandals that have uh, disgraced church leaders because of sexual scandals, inappropriate friendships, and relationships that then drifted into serious sin. And so it is a sensitive subject, and it's one that we come to prayerfully. And I think the first priority as men and women is, is to see that we want to grow in godliness in the community that Jesus is leading us in. That's our priority, to grow in godliness. Our priority as men and women is to help each other do that, is to make the most of Jesus. And for me, I've always loved the clarity of Paul's command to Timothy. As, as a youth worker, when I started out in 97, I sort of, we, we were working through Timothy, and it struck me then, and it keeps striking me now. Chapter 5, verse 1. Do not rebuke older men harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. It's very simple. It's very spot on. If you ignore it, that's where you start getting into trouble. And obviously, it needs prayerful application. It needs the mind of community to discern what does that look like. Positively, it shows that the church should be a place where men, women, young and old, flourish in appropriate relationships, interacting together. There isn't segregation. It's not you can't talk to them, you can't talk to them, don't have anything to do with those over there. You're supposed to be mingled together, flourishing and thriving, encouraging one another. It's a great picture. It's one filled with honor and respect. And I think this is, for our life groups, something we need to hold front and center. This needs to be worked out when we meet a small community during the week. How does it mean to treat, prayerfully thinking, this is my sister, this is my brother, this is, these are my fathers and mothers. This is the family that Jesus is knitting us into. But I also appreciate that the issue of how single men and single women in church relate to, our, to each other is another massive topic, and one that requires huge sensitivity and wisdom. Especially when there are romantic feelings towards each other. And key to all of this is to work on being great friends. I know that sounds very simplistic, and I know there's complexities around that, but it's good to have the headlines. 
The key is to be great friends. Keep the goal of helping the person love Jesus more in your heart and mind. Get support. Get accountability from other church members. Another piece of wisdom is don't isolate yourself. Don't become exclusive in, in terms of just hived off and no one can speak into your life and, and, and that, that, that relationship or your feelings are just sort of boxed off over here. And that's true whether we're in romantic relationships or not. We need the support and accountability of other people. And in particular, I, I love the uh, wisdom that Kathy Keller shares um, with her husband, Tim, as they, from their experience counseling and mentoring young people over a lifetime of ministry, Kathy comments, the common horizon husband and wife look towards is the throne, the throne of Christ. And the holy, spotless, blameless nature we have. I can think of no more powerful common horizon than that. And that is why putting a Christian friendship at the heart of marriage can lift it to a level that no other vision of marriage approaches. It's great to hear that first. Where are you looking, married couples? Where is your focus? Whose throat? What end? And when we think of a, pers a prospective spouse, therefore, as primarily a lover or a provider, and if he or she can be a friend on top of that, well, isn't that nice? Can you see that the imbalance is wrong? The categories we want to use need to be challenged. And so Kathy says, we should be going at it another way around. Screen first for friendship. Look for someone who understands you better than you do yourself, who makes you a better person just by being around them. Then explore whether that friendship should become or could become a romance and a marriage. And so many people go about their dating starting from the wrong end, and they end up in marriages that aren't really about anything and aren't really going anywhere. It's blunt, but it's spot on. It's clear because the focus is right on the throne. And within that, there isn't going to be a route one five-step plan you can follow. You need friends who love you, who care for you, who can help discern that. And be praying for you and talking it through. That GCM, we, we really do want married, single, young and old to travel confidently towards Christ's throne. If there's one thing you're praying for us this year, pray that. That as a church family, we move that way as a community that ebbs and flows, that has comings and goings. That actually we all know where we're going, which is home to the throne, to see Jesus. Which makes the second ingredient, the next quality of what it means to develop Christian friendship, so important. And it is to a commitment to sharing God's word with each other and using our words to build each other up, speaking into each other's lives. I've just put this as constructive counsel. And it's there in um, Proverbs again. Wisdom will save you from the ways of wicked men, saying the parents to their son, from men whose words are perverse, who have left straight paths to walk in dark ways. And again in chapter 18, an unfriendly person pursues selfish ends and against all sound judgment starts quarrels. You can see there, here's the contrast. Bad words lead to bad places. They destroy, they tear down. 
words that are perverse end in destruction and darkness. The selfish person uses their words to put themselves forward, which starts arguments and quarrels. The tongue is a powerful weapon. It can be very destructive. It's easy, isn't it, to see how lies, gossip, and rumors fuel pain and destroy relationships and stir up hurt? It's interesting just on that macro scale of what's going on with with Prince Harry's book being published and the interviews he's done and the hurt that he's carrying and the words he's sharing. But it's hard to see how that's bringing the end goal he wants of reconciliation. And Christians aren't immune from that painful reality. We haven't got our acts together on how we use our words. Our words can be selfish and hurtful. However, recognizing that as disciples of Christ, we should desire people speaking God's word into our lives. We should want that. Last week, one of the questions I received was, how do we challenge people when they're not being good friends? How do we challenge people when we feel they're not pulling their weight as a friend? And it's a brilliant question because... It firstly recognizes wise friendship will involve being challenged and talking about our sin. Friendships have to go to the hard place. There should be a right expectation that in our struggle with sin, we need each other's help. We need to be changed by God's word. And that happens as church. That's what we're here to do. And to the person not being a good friend... In answer to that question, and it requires prayer and it requires courage, surely the first question to sit down and ask each other in that context to that person is, well, do we care about each other enough to be prepared to help each other change? Do we care about each other enough to help each other change? And if it's a yes to that, then there's a move to say, okay, I've got something hard here that I've got to raise because I want us to be in a better place, to serve one another in a deeper way. Listen to how Proverbs describes this. Better is an open rebuke than hidden love. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. It's really pictorial, isn't it? You can get a good image there. The enemy kissing, but the friend actually creating a wound. It's not how we'd have it in real life, is it? We'd rather have the hugs and the just just tell us nice stuff. And I think our culture is in a moment where that's all we want to hear. Don't you dare offend anyone by maybe pushing back. Goodness me, put them in jail. No, our culture needs to hear some of the wisdom here. Friends actually might inflict hurt in order for there to be good, to be healing. to be be changed. The judges' comments on X Factor or Strictly Come Dancing, they're always the funny bit, aren't they? But they can also be cringingly painful, can't they? Particularly when someone thinks they've got a really good singing voice, but it's clear to everyone else that they really should just sing in their bedroom on their own. But the judges' comments come out. And in one sense, actually, yes, I know they egg them up and they, they make them a bit more dramatic, but really, it is a reality check. It's hard in the moment, it's painful, but it is long-term kind. And as Christians, are we inviting 
this level of transparency, this critique, which is scary. But are we inviting it into our lives? Who can we trust? And I recognize throughout lives, there'll be different people, won't there, in your life who do that for you? Parents, grandparents, siblings, school friends, housemates, colleagues, teachers, friends in church, small groups, church leaders, spouses, all of them at some point will correct, they'll challenge, and some of those comments will just will brush off, they'll just fly out, it's like, whatever, mainly because of the quality of what we think about that person, but then others will really stick Others will be words that we carry for decades that we seriously take to heart depending on how much we value the person. And, and those words need discernment as well. They don't come as pure truth sometimes. There are agendas. And yet the wise disciple will be open to having at least two or three believers who, who can ask and can challenge and can hold them to account with God's word. And that's where Colossians 3 is so important. Where we saw there in Colossians 3, 15 to 17, it's in the part of the letter where Paul is talking about what it looks like to live the life in Christ. You are saved, you're in Christ. What does this look like? He's just exhorted the Christians to put on the new self, to put to death the sinful nature and to embrace life in Christ. And he says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts since as members of one body you were called to peace and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And can you see here that as he's addressing church, he's giving some helpful boundaries, some wise counsel and instruction for what it means to challenge as friends. And it starts with the peace of Christ. The peace of Christ rules. This isn't criticism fueled by envy or selfish pride. Having been reconciled to Christ with each other, reconciled to one another as well, any correction or rebuke is spoken in peace. And it's peacefully done with with kindness, with humility, with gentleness, with patience. That means it can still be firm. It can still go to the difficult place. But it starts from a place of peace, looking for peace. Secondly, it's the message of the gospel, God's word. That's what we use to teach and admonish friends with. So admonish means to warn and encourage. It was a word that came up in our 1 Thessalonians series as well, because it's used there in chapter 5, verse 12. But that word, admonish, warn and encourage, there's the challenge element in there as well as the keep on going, keep on going, we're doing this together. And we do that with the authority and content that is God's word. That, all scripture, is God-breathed. That is the thing that is useful, his word, for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that us, the servants of God, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. 
2 Timothy 3.16. That's the content. That's where the authority comes from. That's how we apply it into our hearts. We take God's word, we bring that to a friend, we put it in the context of the problems and issues we're facing, and we we say, what are we going to do together about this? And there's creativity to how to share it. I love the fact that because Paul is thinking about the gathered church together, he then speaks about Psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit through them. So they are vehicles for admonishing and encouraging each other. Isn't that brilliant? There's a creativity there. As we sing, we are doing that work as well. And so singing is something that engages the emotions, isn't it? And we, we warn and we encourage. It's heartfelt. It's, it's, it's not a dry school report we're giving if we're using song to warn and encourage. Now, that doesn't mean when you meet up with friends that you have to burst into a musical. In fact, that would put me off. I really don't like music. One of the things I find really hard about musicals is they sing about normal life, but they have to sing everything. Like, that's, I know Esther's going to take me to one side after and have a go, because, I, yeah, but, you know. Oh, you've really upset me today. You left the towel on the bed. No, just say it. Anyway. Um, (laughs) Sorry, I'm going down a different alley. The words really matter. The words we sing matter. The words we speak matter. Because the Holy Spirit is there applying this truth to our hearts through them. But it doesn't stop when the singing stops, does it? We need time to follow up with each other. We need time for that mutual counsel, that backwards and forwards with each other, Bibles open, praying, pushing each other to follow Jesus. As one writer put it like this, uh, Vaughan Roberts, he said, as we seek to be helpful to our friends, we need to ask how we can bring the gospel to bear on their lives. More often than not, I just need friends who will point me to what I already know very well, but find hard to truly accept and live by. Isn't that honest? I need friends to point me to what I know already, but find hard to accept and live by. This is why meeting in twos or threes, to read the Bible together, to discuss its application, to pray together. As um, we had a a notice from uh, Lucy a few months ago, uh, encouraging this sort of Bible partnerships Reading one to one together or in twos or threes um, in, in ways to pray for each other and, and take the Bible and say, okay, so what does this mean as we're reading through it? There's some resources to do that with the one John letter that we're going to be looking at. Simple stuff, not, not looking to go really deep and heavy, but it might take you there. Praise the Lord if it does. But we want to encourage that fellowship, that friendship here at Grace Church. And if you're interested in those opportunities, do come and speak to me or your life group leader or um, someone in the band who's been up front leading here or one of the welcome team on Connect. We'd love to see those just grow and scatter and go further. And then fourthly, gratitude and thankfulness to God surround the whole process, doesn't it? Ultimately, any correction or warning or counsel that comes from God's word that changes our lives brings heartfelt thanks. Yes, it will sting, 
but we should be thankful for honest and Christ-centered counsel that flows from a loving concern from people who want us to follow Jesus, who are foremost thinking not about our happiness, but our holiness and our wholehearted discipleship. Another question from last week which stood out relating to the issue of uh, of challenging friends uh, was this. When friendship is hard, when there's been incredible hurt, how do we approach friendship with believers, with unbelievers, with repentant, unrepentant? And it's here we'll just finish because I think the first thing to hold in that situation, I recognize it's a painful situation when friends have hugely let us down and hurt us. I think the first thing is we hold in confident prayer that this situation is not outside Jesus' loving, redeeming power. It's what he loves to do is take rubbish and make it beautiful. To take hurts and heal them. To take broken sinners and make them saints in his kingdom. And that's the first place on all of this. All our friendships need redeeming. All of our friendships are a work in progress. All of us will let people down. And all of us will serve and do glorious things to help others. And yet, this is all within Christ's redeeming power. I think there's also a right place in that prayer time of grieving the hurt that it's caused. And that will involve confession, confession on our part, of searching our hearts and saying, what have we contributed to this difficulty? And asking God's forgiveness for us, and prayerfully forgiving the other person, of actually naming them, of taking that to the Lord, of speaking the situation through, of asking God's forgiveness prayerfully. The closer the friendship, the deeper the pain. I understand that. When someone feels betrayed or let down by the other, it's hard even perhaps to say their name because there's such a flood of emotion. But the Lord is there with you in it. If you want to go, if you're hearing the lie, Jesus, you don't know how I feel, just say Gethsemane to yourself. Just say every day he walked on earth and saw the brokenness and pain that he, he, he was confronted with and his his love for this aching, rebellious world. Just think, Judas, Peter. Just think, the twelve running away and leaving him. Oh, he knows. And that means you can run with the pain to him. And the next steps might, you might consider showing those acts of kindness, something small, something in some way that pushes you out of your comfort zone and into a place of dependence on the Lord. Something that, yes, that could be uh, misread or misunderstood or whatever, but doing it from a place of genuine love just to show, to say you care, that this friendship still means something. To rebuild a bridge of communication And if we're at fault, even in some way that we should initiate apologizing to start making things right, to go first there. Now, this requires the strength of the Lord. We can't do it on our own. And at some point, that conversation will mean bringing the problem to them with gentleness and patience, asking, what are we going to do about it together? What are we seeking here? And if you were wronged and you're looking for an apology, 
Would you accept the apology? Would you accept it without a grudge? Even if the words didn't come out the way you had played it over in your mind a hundred times. There's wisdom in bringing in the support and counsel or one or two trusted friends. Not to complain, not to stir things up, but to ask them to speak into your life, to listen to them, to slow things down, to help them challenge you. And for more serious wrongdoing and hurt, and if the person is part of the same church, then yes, there's a precedent in Matthew 18 to bring in other people, the church leaders, again, to seek help with the aim of forgiveness and reconciliation, not crushing people, not having a walk of shame, but to bring forgiveness and healing and peace. These are not easy situations. These are painful ones. But they're not beyond redemption. And if we can be distinctive in our friendship, surely this is something as Christians we offer the world. It's a gospel that redeems. Friendships that can work through difficulty, that can hold pain that can be healed, that are moving step by step towards the throne. And as I finish, I can't help but think of the Apostle Paul and John Mark. I think it's wonderful that the New Testament in Acts does not airbrush this out, doesn't go, oh, no, don't talk about that particular thing between Barnabas and Paul. It's there for you to read, Acts 13. They fall out. They have a massive disagreement. And it wasn't like, a, oh, okay, we've got a difference of opinions. They, they really went at it. The Greek is quite strong. It was a strong argument. And they split. They went different ways over John Mark. Barnabas wanted him to come on the mission. Paul says, no, it, he, he has an issue of trust. And despite everything that happened in Pamphylia in Acts 13 and the emotionally violent disagreement over Mark, in Acts 15, Paul, at the end of his life, found Mark to be very useful in ministry. The man he wanted to leave behind years before, and think this is decades, had become one of his most valuable team members. In 2 Timothy 4:11, Paul asked Timothy to bring Mark. Bring Mark. What a change. And this isn't a change that would have come lightly. Mark would have undergone significant change of character enhancement. Barnabas probably spent hours talking into his life and helping him, saying you can't just pull out when you want. You've got to see we're committed to each other in the work. Paul's right. He's got issues, and that should be dealt with, Mark. It's a beautiful picture of love of grace, of openness and transparency, of perseverance and restoration. And you know what? It's all made possible. Why? Because we have the greatest friend, a saviour, the Lord Jesus, the friend who sticks closer than any brother or sister. Let's pray. Father, quite simply, make us the friends we need to be. Help us take seriously this challenge to love you and to love the people around us you've called us to be in lives, with our words, with your word at the heart of it, making a difference, bringing your redemption. Father, this week, would you continue to change and challenge us in our friendships? 
And Lord, may this church in some small way, by the power of your Holy Spirit, be a place where friendships stick as we look to the throne of Christ and our home with you. Amen.